Hello and welcome to Main Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Stone Age Herbalist, the writer, archaeologist, author of the Grey Goose Chronicles substack and author of the book Berserkers, Cannibals and Shamans, Essays in Dissident Anthropology. If you are surprised to hear me interviewing someone in witness protection, it's because Stone Age Herbalist is uh, he's an anonymous writer and uh, he uses a voice modifier to make sure that his voice isn't easily recognisable, but you will get used to it, I promise. It's a really, really interesting episode. We spent most of it talking about uh, Venus figurines, so the most famous of which is the Venus of Willendorf. Um, Paleolithic figures of women, we don't exactly know what they were created for. They've been a source of intense fascination over the last two centuries, ever since they were rediscovered. We got into all the different theories as to why they were created and why they look the way they do. In the extended part of the episode, we then moved on to talking about witchcraft, uh, witchcraft in particular in contemporary Ghana um, and and ideas about witchcraft across sub-Saharan Africa. You can find that extended version of the episode at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where there are also, as always, bonus episodes, the MMM chat community, where people, men and women, are leaving dating ads and uh, the full back catalogue of previous episodes. Enjoy. So I want to start by talking about this um, really great essay that you've got on your Substack about the Venus figurines, the most famous of which, which I think most people can picture in their minds as the Venus of um, Willendorf, is that how you say it? Yes. What you've written about is different historical responses to these figurines, which we still don't really know for sure what they were used for, but the various theories that have been um, cooked up by anthropologists of different eras really say as much about their own eras as they do about the figurines themselves. Do do you want to start maybe by talking about the very early, because these figurines were found or started to be found, right, at a time when there was still plenty of people in archaeology who had a, a literal understanding of the Bible and therefore found the idea of ancient people's um, quite disturbing, is that right? Yes. So prehistory, when we look at it from a sort of historiographical lens, you know, sort of looking back on how it developed, um, you have to go from about the 1820s to 1860s, where it really exploded and and caused just a, a great rupture in in the sort of um, mental landscape uh, of um, of the West. Um, so the Venus figurines were just part and parcel of all of this sort of material culture that was being uncovered and excavated, including, you know, skeletal remains, uh, flint tools, hand axes, um, strange ivory objects, um, cave art and so on. Um, and the Venus figurines were just one of these very strange objects, but archeology, span although the people certainly the bigger names in it were were really uh, groundbreaking and very intelligent men typically um the actual practice of archaeology was extremely sloppy and so usually what you do is just hire someone hire just some workmen and they would just bash bash around in the ground until they found stuff and things were often sold stolen on the site um, and traded around 
So the origin of trying to understand the Venus figurines goes back to France, where most of our most prehistorical archaeology in terms of Paleolithic develops in France. Um, and um, the the archaeologists who uncovered them were really quite gobsmacked and quite really tried tried <laughs> they really put their thinking caps on trying to work out what the hell are we dealing with here we've we've uncovered these um these uh figurine statues usually made of ivory sometimes um bone sand different sandstone different different materials um trying to understand what they were um and the the thinking at the time was divided between people who wanted to make it fit with obviously a bit the biblical narrative or at least a a version of prehistory that made sense within a christian framework and then those people who wanted to completely break with that and the origins of archaeology and geology sort of go together in that you get this concept of really deep time which I mean, still, if we start to think about the time time depths that you know involved in the Paleolithic, they can be quite staggering to consider. In not just mm. thousands of years, but tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. Um, and so there was there were definitely there was definitely a rival set of intellectual camps developing around, um, you know, what what the Paleolithic meant. But it wasn't. It didn't really take too long before the religious dropped away in the face of no no geology is real in terms of you know the time depth that we're talking about and then uh, the the deep time of human history is real and then the venus figurines start to fit into that understanding of trying to break those down into different time sections it's so difficult to conceptualize deep time that i think uh I personally often struggle to kind of get the landmarks right in terms of this kind of ancient history, and I imagine some listeners will as well. Yeah, it's it's devastating to the mind. <laughs> it really is. Could we just have some some like just a few landmarks in terms of thinking about what era we're talking about? So the human, so Homo sapiens are what a hundred, two hundred thousand years. Two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand years, I think, is about the established time depth for homo sapien um, evolution in terms of just that species yeah we developed agriculture roughly when mm, 10 to twelve thousand years ago so there's a there's a huge time gap in between those two things <laughs> indeed yes and where within that range are the venus figurines being produced do we think so the venus figurines fit into the typically europe and a bit of Eurasian prehistory. So although Homo sapiens evolved about 250, 300,000 years ago, the surviving expansion into Europe and Eurasia started about 45,000 years ago. And okay. the most of the Venus figurines were made between about 40 to 20,000 years ago. When you have a couple of different cultural waves, but we're, we're sort of largely fitting within that time about 40 to 20,000 years ago roughly speaking so this is a period when Europe shifts in sort of shifts gear into what you'd think of as a, like a major ice age um mm. and so that's when the the glaciers start to expand and push down into into central Europe making everything very cold the sort of tundra environment and it's 
everything you associate with classic Ice Age imagery, mammoths and, you know, woolly rhinos and all that kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's the sort of heyday of the Venus figurine production. They roughly extend from the Atlantic to Siberia, and they aren't really made anywhere else. They do re-emerge, oddly, in the Near East with the dawn of agriculture and the question of whether the, the two are linked, whether they're an independent development, whether they mean the same thing is, yeah, one of those open questions. And what would you say are the key defining characteristics of the Venus figurines that would set them apart from other female humanoid figurines that you might find elsewhere? Stereotypically, they're much larger, fatter. They have a lot of fat around their, their waists, around their buttocks, um, usually with large breasts, um, no face or very minimal facial features, usually no feet or hands, although that, that, that might just be an artifact of preservation and the most likely things to break off. But certainly a focus on what you could call stereotypical feminine features or you know, if not female in the in the everyday human sense, then feminine, you know, sort of emphasizing waists, breasts, um, and so on. But when you actually go through the figurines, sort of lay them out, as some archaeologists have done, um, you know, their obesity isn't isn't always a defining characteristic. There are plenty of places and times where Venus figurines are much thinner. Um, and much narrower featured, and they probably were dressed in clothes, although we, you know, it's hard to see that today, those things wouldn't have survived, but there's, a very, there's some sort of hints that they probably may have been dressed like other doll figurines from the ethnographic record, but stereotypically we're thinking about, yeah, just a sort of exaggerated female form. Mm. And uh, what kind of size are they, the, the figurines themselves? Not very big. I mean, most of them could fit fit in your hand quite comfortably. Or on a necklace or something like that? Something like that, yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not huge. People see them, you know, in the sort of pictures very close up and they look much larger than they actually are. They're not really very large at all. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're designed to be... So Paleolithic art tends to divide its art into art that is fixed in place so cave art engravings that kind of thing and then portable art art that would have been taken with you carried around or could be moved from place to place so venus figurines fit into those into that category of portable art and it's amazing really that we're talking about a span of some tens of thousands of years where people across an enormous landmass are all drawn to make quite similar figures well i think the there's a there's probably a good reason for that the the number of people at that time is extremely low you know very very low population numbers and most venus figurines are associated with a culture called the gravettian culture which expanded about sort of thirty thousand years ago out from the black sea area um up the danube and then into partly into Russia and all the way out to the Atlantic. And it was a very, very unified culture. Um, they had very similar taste in art, taste in tool types, clothing, uh, burial practices, um, genetically 
fairly homogenous um, from east to west. Probably they maintained that just through perhaps things like seasonal gatherings, um, perhaps you know marrying between different uh, different groups. But for many tens of thousands, well, not for many thousands of years, there would have been a, a relatively unified culture from about the Urals to the Atlantic. So that's yeah. really when the heyday of these these um, these Venus figurines were made. And just to be clear, they they've not been found in Britain, so this is just continental Europe and Russia. I can't think of one that would that has been found in Britain, and that's probably because at the time it was mostly covered in ice. Okay, yeah. so basically, yeah, okay. So should we let's go through some of the? Oh, hang on, I wrote down this quote that I thought was really <laughs> great from uh, from talking about this earlier earlier era of um of anthropology in the nineteenth century and what uh what's often called now the the age of primitivism and there was this quote from uh edouard piet uh from 1873 um which i thought just sounded uh remarkably modern which is why i wrote it down he writes exercise and open air life disseminated among the savages whom we regard as whom we regard as miserable a touch of morality of strength and calm that laborers and office clerks will never know i was basically taught that at soas <laughs> as an anthropology student right? so the, the the kind of uh uh the noble savage view which remains quite dominant in progressive anthropology even though people wouldn't use that phrase so there is this interesting sort of gear change in anthropology in the 19th century right where we go from from not even thinking about deep time because of having a literal understanding of genesis to actually having a very an understanding of um pre-agricultural people that's very sort of i don't know mystical spiritual investing them with with um some quite romantic beliefs yes i mean the uh, the original noble savage concept as in sort of Alain Rousseau, mm. is mostly inspired by uh, European colonial experiences in Polynesia um, and in the Americas, in the Amazon and in Africa, um, you know, encountering different peoples and trying to make sense of, trying to make sense of how they fit into first a religious framework and then as the religious framework falls away, trying to make sense of them in a materialistic developmental or evolutionary framework as Darwin comes to eclipse basically all the other explanations. Where we where we end up in about the sort of 1860s, 1870s, there are a lot of arguments about different the the idea of racial hierarchies and where different peoples in the world fit into them and how their virtues and vices should be understood. And obviously you get some people who think of you could call it sort of the primitive mind, perhaps, um, who think of it as a good thing, as, um, you know, it's it's a sort of back to basics, there's a mobility to it, there's a strength to it. It's anyone who thinks of, you know, civil, as being too civilised, perhaps overly civilised, that you can have too much civilization. I think will always be drawn to a simpler life. Um, as being as having some qualities to it that you you might want to um, that you might find you know good to adopt, and then of course you have the opposite of that, which is that 
that kind of savage life is, as as they said, they regard it as miserable. It's squalid. It's it's you know devoid of all advan- of advances in medicine and, uh, and industry and so on. So you do get that split reflected in I'm trying to understand the Paleolithic, and one of the ways they do that is there's an argument about whether primitive art reflects basic reality. So does do the cave paintings and do the drawings, do the figurines and statues, because obviously there are many figurines and statues of animals. There are actually very few of people. There are almost no drawings of people. People are quite rare in the, in the record. Most things are of animals. Do they reflect reality or do they belong to some kind of superstitious mind or do they belong to you know flights of fancy that kind of thing and that is still a question that is you know is being explored and debated in in archaeology today we have things like genetics now that can help us so for example there are horses depicted on the walls of caves that for a long time would were thought of as just uh imaginative so they had things like different spot patterns and main colours that we don't see today. And for a long time they were thought of as just, you know, just imagination, stylistic. And genetics of ancient horses has suggested that they're probably accurate. So there's a lot of debate about, you know, whether they're whether they're portraying accurate things. And that's exactly what we see in those types of in the, the debates around the sort of sixties and eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies as well. Including when it comes to the, the Venus figurines. And a link that I, it hadn't occurred to me, but of course seems obvious now, is with the so called hot and top Venuses. It, most famous of whom was um Sarah Bartman, who yes. was a South African woman brought to Europe and exhibited to European audiences in what the late nineteenth late 18th century so before before this period of anthropology Bartman was notable because she had these very kind of distinctive pattern of fat deposits which are not which look a lot like the Willendorf Venus and are not generally seen in European populations yes so probably the first framework to understand the Venus figurines was through race Mm -hmm. one of the understandings of southern African ethnic and racial groups was the depictions and understandings of the San, the Khoisan, the Khoikhoi peoples who live mostly in Southern Africa and uh, Namibia and places like that and are still there today but obviously were more numerous at the time. Um, and it is a notable feature of the San and of a few other peoples like the Andaman Islanders that they have um, fat deposits around their thighs and particularly on their buttocks that are very, very large. Um, and it's called statopygia in the medical record or in the medical literature. So it, it was a natural link to the anthropologists and the early archaeologists at the time when they uncovered the Venus figurines and started seeing some of them that had, had obviously anatomically correct depictions of fat deposits that they wanted to interpret that through a racial framework. So who were the people who first occupied Europe at the time? Did they belong to the same race as the as the people that we see in uh, in Southern Africa at the time? So that was a, a fairly straightforward interpretive framework. And it's one that hasn't completely gone away, but 
obviously the concept of race has massively diminished in anthropology and archaeology. It doesn't really exist as an as an ex explanatory framework today. But the idea that the Venus figurines are depicting real things, that they're not totally figurative, that they are obviously correct in some way, is is a fairly dominant interpretation now, I think. So you have to ask the question, how would an Ice Age hunter-gatherer know exactly how to carve uh, a quite fat woman? Well, the answer is that they must have seen them. Mm. So part of that, ex, you know, part of that descriptive and explanatory framework still exists. Um, it's just been transmuted from racial to medico-biological. So that, yeah, so that is the 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 enormous mystery, right? How is it that in, uh, in during an ice age period, when we presume food is very scarce and people are living in very difficult conditions? How is it that obesity would be in existence at all if we're assuming that what is being depicted in these figurines are, are you know, real women who have real and accurate uh, fat deposits? So one theory, which is really quite, quite charming, as to why these figures appear in this strange form, you know, where you've got the really exaggerated feminine figure but basically no feet, basically no hands, no faces, whatever, is the self-representation theory, the right, right that the idea that women are, that these are created by female artists who are depicting themselves and they have no mirrors and so they are looking down and that's why you have these uh, exaggerated proportions. What, do you know when that, that explanation first emerged? Uh, 1996. Oh, so late in the piece. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for most of the the, expl the the explanations of the Venus figurines, most of the history of that has take, takes for granted that men made the pieces. It wasn't mm -hmm. really until much later, sort of um, late 80s, 90s, that e even the idea that women had carved them themselves um, was was bandied about before that it was generally assumed that uh that men must have made the figurines and you know some of the explanations for that once we move out of the more prudish victorian edwardian era some of the explanations for them are so deeply cringe that i actually struggle to write about, <laughs> write about them <laughs> um, um but yes the self-representation theory I think is probably the most famous outside of outside of you know the pages of obscure academic journals the idea that women are essentially looking down at themselves and focusing on the things they see on their own bodies and then converting that into a three-dimensional figurine which has a lot of explanatory power because it does help to explain why certain features are exaggerated. It also explains why faces and feet come to be missing for a lot of the time. But it still leaves open the question of, you know, why why so fat, perhaps, as you could put it. Um, if, you know, if there's one thing you can say when you look around the world at hunter-gatherers is that they're usually remarkably lean and in fantastic physical form uh so you know why why obesity is a great question 
yeah, one argument that you can muster in defence of the sort of uh, noble savage view is you, you see photos of, say, Indigenous Australians or, or other um, Indigenous peoples on first contact, um, and they look incredible. Like they've got they're re- they've got incredible physiques, incredible teeth. Like it, they really do look so much better <laughs> than most <laughs> Westerners, which isn't necessarily to refute the Hobbesian view, right? But but it is it is interesting um, how uh, how much healthier people seem to be, at least in terms of their body weight. What do you think is a possible explanation for that? Then, if uh, yeah, so even if very skinny w- women looking down at themselves, they're going to look more um, voluptuous from that perspective. But it it's it still seems as if like they are accurately representing the way that, that that fat is laid down on the female figure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Venus of Willendorf, um, you know that figurine looks absolutely accurate. If if a woman was overweight, you know the the placement and and just everything about it is accurate. So, I think we'd have to say that obesity certainly existed at at some point in time during those thousands of years. Um, there's two there's there's two explanations for it, I think, that, that are linked. One is that, you know, nobody in the ethnographic record, as far as we can go back, lived under the conditions that these people lived under, which was a an ice age at its absolute peak. You know, this is this is unbelievably cold weather. Um and also these are people who who whose diet focused around hunting what we call megafauna. So things like mammoths, uh, rhinos, bears, reindeer, and you know the much bigger animal, the huge animals. You know when you actually look at the calorie output from something like a mammoth, you're talking about millions of calories, um, which with a very small population adds up quite quickly. So there is at least to some some researchers there's there's some plausibility to the idea that and there's a paper that 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 tries to i'm not it's not completely convincing but it is interesting nonetheless they they try and position the different figurines in their proximity to the glaciers and how far down the glaciers got into europe and they have statistically try and show that the fatter figurines belong to the closer edge of of the sort of the, the glacial line and they interpret that as there may have been a social premium on being overweight as a woman in in, the, in that environment. That they in were the more pop, likely in the colder to, areas. Yes, they're more likely to survive. They're more likely to bear children healthily. Um, you know, things like gestational diabetes. Although obviously it has has drawbacks. Um, it does produce larger children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's that's one argument that. It's very difficult to make a comparative case around the world today because nobody lives next to a glacier under an ice age with something like mammoth as their, you know, as one of their main foods. <laughs> right, because people living in the Arctic Circle now aren't aren't hunting megafauna. No, they tend to live on seafood and um, marine mammals, which, although you know, very high in fat. I still don't think produce the caloric excess that you could get from something like bringing down a mammoth. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they are, marine food is 
uh, very different in terms of its, um, you know, its effects on the body and so on. So people like the Inuit are well adapted to a very particular kind of diet, which one that's very rich in things like omega threes and and so on. So yeah, nobody has really, no one has ever seen people living in the conditions that people like the Gravettians were living under. So that's that's one that's one possible explanation. Another is that there was, as there sometimes is. So if you look at some, particularly West Africa, and in some some pastoralist tribes in Eastern Africa, there is a social premium on being fat mm. um you know if you go to uh mauritania even today there is a tradition where girls are taken away from their families and fattened up for marriage they're essentially mm. force-fed like a combination of milk and millet um until so they put on a lot of weight and that's the there's an optimal weight for for marriage which is supposed to link to fertility and health and so on so it's not without precedent that you know deliberately putting on weight may have been you know a goal may have been an intentional goal i mean it would make sense in that kind of environment i guess what seems odd um looking at contemporary hunter-gatherer groups is the idea they would ever have access to that many calories to get that fat but then as you say you bring down a mammoth were they able to preserve the food as well Presumably, I mean, under those conditions, you could freeze food, um, yeah. you can render fat, you could smoke it. Yeah, it's so yeah. sometimes maybe they would have a glut, and you'd end up with the women or some of the women getting really fat, <laughs> and that would be a <laughs> and that would I presume be a very memorable thing for anyone who encountered those women. Exactly, way, you might therefore see them depicted in art. Yeah, exactly. And another thing we have to think about is that at this period, in what's called the Upper Paleolithic, this is where we start to get the first inklings of social stratification. So there are Gravettian burials in Russia that suggest that there was already a, a the start of a of a, an elite or at least a, a group of people who had more social status, prestige and hereditary status. So there are child burials at a site called um, Sungir where the children are buried with just the most astonishing grave goods um you know the, the beads that they uh, they're buried with their clothes were ornately decorated with these mammoth bone mammoth ivory beads i think it's like an estimated ten thousand hours or so it must have gone into making these these outfits that they were buried with um so there's the suggestion at this point that we're starting to get social stratification and divide so it might be that some women were allowed to become fat or were encouraged mm -hmm. to become fat. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are high status women who have been depicted, therefore. Potentially, potentially, yeah. Speaking of the the uh, the grave goods, I didn't know before reading um, your essay on this about the woman, the uh, La Donna di Ostuni. Is that right? The, La Donna um, di Ostuni, yeah. The, the, yeah. The mother of Ostuni, yeah. The remains found in Italy of an eighth month pregnant woman um who died we think of uh, eclampsia yes the really interesting thing in that in that um grave right is the hat that she was wearing could you talk about that and how that might link to the to the venus figurines yeah there is so this is a culture called the epigravetians who were a different group of people who moved who moved into italy after the glaciers started to sort of hit their maximum and then retreat one of the notable um, sort of cultural 
the way that they buried people culturally was slightly different and they would bury people directly in the ground with a lot of grave goods, very, very ornate. Um, and there are individuals, so there's a young boy called the Prince and there's this mother of Ostuni and they are buried with these shell bead hats. They're sort of caps, but they're decorated with these, um, I think they're like periwinkles or something. But anyway, they're like in, they're little shells that must have been collected from the coast, taken a long time, and then they're painted with ochre or some other dye. They were put on their heads um, when they're buried. And there, there's a paper, it's speculative, but it's I think it's a very interesting paper because it's one that really tries to make move beyond just, you know, trying to look at the different Venus figurines and, you know, what does what does being fat tell you? It, it starts to move on from that and suggest that. So we have this piece of evidence where one woman was buried and she had died with a exquisitely preserved eight-month-old fetus that was obviously still inside her. She was pregnant when she died. So by the bioarchaeological explanation or one of the interpretations is that she died from eclampsia. And the thing about eclampsia, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is that it can produce very strong convulsions and seizures towards the end before you die. And so the researchers try and link the fact that many of the, not all of them, but certainly many of the Venus figurines have these sort of bobbly, bobbly hats or hairstyles, um, which have been interpreted in various ways as cornrows or different headgear and so on, but some of them, particularly the Venus of Willendorf, has this sort of bobbled hat on them. And so they try and link that to the to the the mother of Ostuni and say, look, it's uh, it's possible that these figurines were and and the headdress were some kind of protective artifact against something like eclampsia, because you know, seizures and convulsions are very frightening even for people who understand what they are medically they're very frightening to witness and they would be even more terrifying if you were eight months pregnant um and so under an animistic worldview perhaps you would try and locate the source of it in the head and you would try and do something some kind of sympathetic magic where you're making a figurine or trying to trying to do something to stop that from happening Obviously, you don't understand what's happening. You're trying to understand it. So that's one explanation: is that the both the figurines and also the, the headgear are linked to protection in pregnancy, and that therefore the purpose of these figurines could have been as protective amulets for pregnant women. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because they are very small. They're very easy to hold in the hand, and there's no. This is something we you have to think about when. They're very public objects today. You see photos of them there in museums. Um, but there's, there's no reason to think that they were especially public artifacts during their life. You know, they're quite small. They're, they're easy to keep to oneself. Um, there's no reason to think that they would have been part of any kind of public ritual or understanding or cosmology. They may have been intensely personal and private objects that women, pregnant women, had kept and used for protection. It's a theory, obviously we, we, we really don't know, but it is worth thinking that, you know, these things probably never went on display. 
they may have been handed from one person to another. Um, they may have been venerated, they may not have been, they may have just stayed with somebody under their clothes for the entire life of the object. We just don't know. Should we talk about some of the weirder and more wonderful theories about what they have been used for? <laughs> now that we've covered the most plausible explanations. <laughs> I mean, to, to me, the self-representation theory combined with this sort of protective amulet theory seems seems very plausible. That has not always been the favoured theory by archaeologists and anthropologists of the past, right? Should we talk about the... the, the so we talked a bit about the, the sort of first encounters with these figures in the 19th century. When did feminists start cottoning onto these as potentially significant items? Good question. I mean, um, well, the first, I suppose we have to separate out a, the understanding of matriarchy as, as pertains to prehistory and then feminism as a separate strand of thought. Mm -hmm. The concept of a matriarchy and things like goddess worship, worship that may have gone with it, they were bubbling around in the zeitgeist long before feminism, you know, developed as a as a political theory. So there has there was almost from the get go an undercurrent that this that, you know that this may have something to do with matriarchy and goddesses because although then nobody can agree on matriarch or you know what matriarchy means whether it existed. And if it did exist, how, what did it look like? There's one thing that almost everyone who thinks about matriarchy agrees on is that matriarch matriarchy is first and it's primal and it's mm. the it's the original. Whether or not you think that's true, that's another matter. But the certainly historically, everyone seems to have agreed that matriarchy comes first. Um, and if you're looking at potentially the first ever people in Europe, which is what these archaeologists were looking at, then it makes sense that matriarchy was floating around in the description or in the understanding. Um, feminism really starts to come to the fore in 1920s, 1910s, Edward, you know, sort of Edwardian era. Mm -hmm. First wave feminism, as you know probably better than me, was quite strange <laughs> in, in many of its in many of its beliefs feminists have always had an interest in prehistory because they've mm. always been interested in what does family naturally look like what is the role of women in uh, in a, a sort of a, a, a in a state of nature what is the role of woman mm -hmm. um and how that how has that changed with the coming or the advent of, of patriarchy? So there's always been an interest in you know, feminism, always an interest in prehistory from that angle, along with other angles, but certainly that one. You know, the the first wave of feminists had a very interesting relationship to things like motherhood, promiscuity, chastity, the idea of sacred motherhood. Um, the divine feminine, all of these sorts of ideas. And those do filter through into, into the um, sort of archaeological sphere, although they, they, they probably, the, the best fruit that that bears probably comes from, uh, you know, work in Greece and the classical era. The, the archaeologists who go on to work and excavate in, you know, Knossos and so on. The actual figurines themselves 
probably have their heyday in second wave and then and third wave. Certainly second wave feminism really picks up with the goddess movement. Mm-hmm. By the time the goddess movement in the 70s picks up pace, it's very much out of favour in, in academia. It's seen as you know, a bit of a joke, not very serious, a bit, a bit backwards, apart from Maria Gimbutas. She, you know, she's a she's a whole story unto herself. And for the most part, the figurines as explanations, you know, the explanation of them as being goddesses, comes from the wider culture, from people like Carol Christ and um, yeah, Carol Christ and, and so on, rather than from inside the institution, from inside academia. So this is a popular idea at the time, but not one that has much academic legitimacy. Yes, Maria Gimbutas is. A separate story because she she does what nobody does at the time which is to try and restore some kind of grand meta-narrative and develops this concept of old europe um so as i said at the beginning not all venus figurines belong to the paleolithic there are venus figurines that belong to the neolithic which is the stone age period where agriculture comes to be developed and then spread across europe so she has this she had the story of old Europe as a sort of Neolithic egalitarian matriarchy. And one of her one of her sort of pieces of evidence for that was these Venus figurines, um, that they were representations of the goddess, the triple goddess, along with these sorts of spirals and different ty- different types of artwork. And then she famously then suggests that this culture is destroyed and wiped out by the patriarchal Indo-Europeans from the steppe. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but that's where that's where sort of got a um, Venus figurine start to emerge. There are a few other sites. We have Chapelhoyuk in Turkey where Venus figurines were discovered, um, and then once you get back into what you call processional archaeology, I suppose, so archaeology that, that is very interested in like. Take, taking science seriously, you know, it's very focused on measuring, it's quite objective and so on. And that has no time for matriarchy and so on. But then as we push on and you get third wave feminism um, coming into the academy, then Venus figurines become quite important. Um, but I feel like I'm rambling at this point. <laughs> no, 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 please go on. No, this is the meat of it. Why? Um, <laughs> By third wave feminism, we mean the sort of genderist performance, yada yada. What's their favoured interpretation of these figurines? I probably mean this. I probably mean the end of second wave, in okay. terms of of, of when Ven- the Venus figurines come back into fashion as a with feminism as an interpretation. So we, you know, you so get, like the self representation theory of the nineties, that kind of self representation, but yeah. also also a critique more than an explanation. So most of the explanations between this, let's say 1960 and 1990 become quite unhinged at times. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, particularly with people like Guthrie and, and other, other archaeologists, but there was, you know, as you can imagine, um, with the, the sexual revolution and the sort of the the new ideas that 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 could be applied in archaeology in this um, between the sixties and the eighties, 
these Venus figurines start to fit into some really weird ideas about um, sex, um, about so there's explanations of them as prostitutes, as sex slaves for the afterlife, as pornography, as erotic objects for teenage boys, someone marking their marking their property, as sympathetic magic for reproduction. So you know, a, a man wants a woman to bear lots of children, so he's carving these sorts of magical objects that would that will help with that. All sorts of really. Fellow centric, I think we yeah. should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting ideas come to the fore, and then you start to get second, end of second wave, beginning of third wave critiques of these as basically saying, "Look, this is just, this is just insane." This <laughs> like, is just poor brain. Yeah, um. I mean, so Guthrie's book, who you know, it, it is quite funny to read. He, he has a book on um, Paleolithic artwork in general but he spends way way too much time thinking about sex as, a, as an explanation for a lot of depictions uh, and for a lot of a lot of artwork and he spends a lot of time talking about like hip to waist ratios um you know how fat can be erotic also I mean, like paleolithic sex toys all sorts of really you know, there's like pages about yeah. like paleolithic pubic hair, and it's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you read it and you just think this really is of the 1970s. Although yeah, actually, I think that book came out in 2005, but you could just tell this was someone's hey, who you know, their heyday was in like 1975. You mentioned earlier that basically everyone up until the 90s say thinks that these were crafted by men. Yes. Does that include the the feminists who are who are conceiving of these um, sort of matriarchal symbols? Do they also think that the that the artists were male? No, but okay. as I said, for for most of that time, most of the the feminist interpretation of them came from outside academia. Oh, I see. So it's from within academia that the assumption is the artists are male. Yes. Yeah. Do so they have any like? What's what? What kind of evidence do they have to 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 base that assumption on? Apart from the the, the porn brain stuff, but almost what, none, really. Really, I mean, there's nothing. Um, That's interesting. There's nothing really to suggest who made things. It's just the assumption is that they were made because they because they are depictions of women, and that they you know they're either naked or nearly naked, or they have exaggerated sexual characteristics. That they're obviously their purpose is for men, and therefore, if their purpose is for men, then they must have been made by men. I mean, I see the logic, but it doesn't seem obvious to me at all. It's not but obvious, but at the time, yeah. that was that's that was the logic of it. Hmm. You have to, I, I suppose, one thing we have to understand is that these these objects are quite esoteric, even within academia. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not objects that many people have ever spent their life devoted to. They're not like. They are a subset of Paleolithic art studies. Paleolithic art studies is a very niche field <laughs> in and of itself. Also, many of these figurines are very difficult to get access to because they have either been lost, destroyed, we only have drawings of them. They exist in museums all around Europe and off into Siberia. Um, and it's, they're also been, they're interesting, but they're not so interesting that you might spend, 
you know, tens of thousands of pounds going around all the different museums and making a comprehensive study of them. So what most of the most of the work that has been done on them uses second or third hand literature in and of itself. So it's not really until much later that you get people really taking the object itself seriously. You know, many, many, many reports and and interpretations of them are based off drawings of original objects without ever having looked at them. Because, like I say, they are very niche esoteric objects within within an already quite niche field. I liked that um, you mentioned the fact that uh, Edouard Piet, who I quoted earlier, this uh, 19th century anthropologist, um, he by 1900 he owned almost all of them. He'd he yes he did yeah. yes <laughs> he'd, he'd amassed a small collection, which then presumably he's been as the collection has been um, split since then, and also more have been found. I presume yes, more have been found. That many of them are are in uh, public institutions, but I would not be surprised if some of them are still in private hands. As mm. as far as I know, there is no set of drawings or photographs of every single one of them mm. so there are many many figurines of that, that we've never seen we know they exist because they're recorded in excavations and, and uh, you know different papers and so on but many of them have never even been have seen the light of day you mm. know they've just they've just been excavated and disappeared Piet purchased most of them because he was very concerned that they were going to disappear into the marketplace, and he wasn't wrong to be worried about that, um, because there was a premium, and still is, on those kinds of very rare prehistoric um, artwork. So he purchased them basically to keep them safe at a time when they wouldn't have been taken very seriously by museums, where museums even existed at all. Oh, hey, I'd steal them and create a little collection. Now that, <laughs> <laughs> now that I know all this, that'd be a great thing to have on your. Well, own there are lots and lots it? of um, there are lots of reproductions of them from um, in lots of really weird ways. They also turn up in very odd places culturally. Um, you know, they are cultural artifacts now as well as archaeological ones. I mean, yeah, anyone knows where I can get hold of one. I, I happily um, happily have it as a curiosity. <laughs> You've just finished listening to the first part of this episode. It's not over yet. There's an extra half an hour or so, which is um, behind the paywall, which you can access at louiseperry.substack.com and where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Every paid subscription makes an enormous difference to my ability to produce the show, to, to pay my producers to do all the things necessary to put out a regular podcast. If you're not able to sign up for a paid subscription, but you value what we're doing. You can support the show in other ways. You can tell people about it. The word of mouth factor is really important. You can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can uh, like the videos on YouTube. All of these things make an enormous difference to my ability to grow the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>